Hey everybody, welcome to BibleStudyPodcasts.org. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and as some of you know, if you watch us on Facebook, if you like us on Facebook, I've been planning on making what I consider to be kind of a, a big announcement today. But before I get to that, I wanted to let all of you who normally listen to us through uh, your iPhone app know that I am completely aware of the fact that the app is currently down. The company who designed and and publishes our iPhone app is a Christian company that's currently being sued by a former employee, and apparently... I don't know, apparently it's pretty serious, it's a pretty ugly situation, because while they're in litigation, they've actually completely shut down their servers. Uh, When will it be back? I have no idea, I really don't know. I suppose it's possible that it won't be back, and that we'll have to find another company to go with. Time will tell, but I'll be sure to keep all of you in the loop. One way or another, we will have an iPhone app back up and running in the near future. And I also wanted to let you know that we're very close to being ready to release our app for Android. We've had a couple hiccups, but it shouldn't be too long now. Again, uh, I'll be sure to keep you guys in the loop. And now for this big announcement, quote-unquote big announcement, um, you know, I've been serving as senior pastor at my church, Linwood Evangelical Free Church, for the past two and a half years, and my associate pastor has recently stepped down from his position. So the announcement is that I'm looking for somebody to take his place. Now, this is a bivocational position. Uh, it would be a great opportunity to do an internship if you're in seminary or Bible college, but this is bivocational, meaning it's not full-time, and it only offers uh, part-time pay. I mean, I'm bivocational as well, by the way. I sell a bunch of stuff on Amazon to help uh, make ends meet. But ideally, we're looking for someone who plays piano, is interested in leading our youth, but who's also interested in learning the ropes of ministry under my personal supervision, which will absolutely include the opportunity to preach from time to time. Now, we're talking about a time commitment of probably about five hours per week. No experience is necessary, but a willingness to tackle even your worst enemy to prevent him from spending eternity apart from God is absolutely necessary. Now, if that sounds like you, and you've felt God's calling in your life to do something like this, get in touch with me. My email address is cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com, or you can go to biblestudypodcasts.org and click on the contact button at the top uh, and email me from there. But we are praying for the right person for the job, and if you've got any interest at all, I'm looking forward to talking with you. Enjoy the podcast. And may the Lord bless you abundantly as you keep growing closer to Jesus. Good morning. C.S. Lewis wrote... A really interesting book, and I would uh, recommend this to anybody who uh, either likes C.S. Lewis or hasn't read uh, the book called The Screw Tape Letters. And one of the one of the uh, things about this book that kind of makes it 
uh, almost satirical or kind of funny is the fact that it's a conversation, uh, letters being written back and forth between this hellish creature, a demon, um, and uh, his nephew. And the, the, the uncle demon is teaching his nephew demon uh, how to be effective in his role of uh, working against God's kingdom. And at one point, he makes the point that all you have to do is set them against each other and let it go. Um, and so today we're going to be talking about avoiding a culture of cannibalism, but in hell, know that they are holding classes on how to create a culture of cannibalism. Uh, who's responsible, anyway, for the majority of opposition to God's work by God's people today? I'm sure that you know, you'd find as many answers to that question as people you could ask. Uh, some people would say it's the ACLU with their, uh, with their quest to secularize and, and neutralize any and all uh, Christian expressions of faith. Um, or some would say maybe it's the new atheists. The new atheists are these people who uh, are just uh, like, they're, they're like in an army. They're like, they've got this military mindset and they can't be reasoned with. In fact, they totally reject reason and conversation altogether. They're some of the most uh, irrational thinkers in the history of thought. Uh, some people would say it's the government with the way they take this supposed uh, separation of church and state clause to new and more ridiculous levels of interpretation. You know, th- these, these are all answers that have some validity. They all represent genuine threats to authentic Christianity, and we should kind of expect that to be the case, just because we have a different value system than any of these groups. And yet, some might make the argument, some people might answer that question by saying that there's an even greater threat that we face, that being those who desire or profess to desire a form of godliness, but they dismiss and completely reject authentic Christianity. A man named John White wrote a book, uh, kind of a commentary on Nehemiah. It's really a book on Christian leadership called Excellence in Leadership. And at one point he writes, quote, No test of leadership is more revealing than the test of opposition. Christian leaders can go to pieces under such pressure. Some grow too discouraged to continue. Others build walls around themselves and shoot murderously from behind them. They become embattled, embittered, and vindictive. Not so with Nehemiah. Nowhere does his leadership shine more brilliantly than, his, than in his handling of opposition, end quote. Now, we've already established the fact that we can expect opposition. So given the fact that we can expect opposition, anyone who is expected to be a leader in any way, shape, or form, and that includes you guys, that includes everybody in this building, everybody who's expected to be a leader in any way, shape, or form has a lot to learn from the book of Nehemiah. Now, I spent a couple hours this week. I had my monthly uh, pastor's lunch for the regional EFCA pastors, and I, I spent some time uh, driving with, one, uh, with two of the pastors, but uh, I was particularly engaged in conversation with one of the pastors who said, uh, you know, it's really a shame that our seminaries don't offer courses in conflict management. And, you know, we, we sort of concluded that, you know, that, that would be really helpful, but there are a lot of things that would be uh, really helpful. Um, but the, the fact is, you know, it's, it's probably true, we agreed, that most pastors don't know how to handle conflict properly because pastors tend to be people pleasers. And besides, 
really, the only way to learn how to walk on fire is to walk on fire. The only way to learn how to ride a bike is to ride a bike. You can read all the books in the world uh, and take all the classes in the world about how to ride a bike, but until you sit on it, man, you don't know how to ride a bike, and we all know that. Uh, same goes for things like swimming and so on and so forth. Now, um, you know, the only way uh, to learn this stuff is to experience it. And it's not that I have any desire to walk through fire, but, you know, I, I don't exactly desire, uh, you know, I'm not eager to, to deal with conflict management. It's, it's just not uh, part of my disposition, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's part of life. It just happens, and we're all going to encounter it. Every single one of us, if we are engaged in doing God's work, we are going to encounter it, and so we better learn how to handle it. We'd better just walk through the fire and learn how to do it. So today, we're going to have a lesson in conflict management, avoiding a culture of cannibalism as we study Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, it's interesting, when you break down the chapters and what the chapters are about and everything, it's really interesting to see how Nehemiah breaks this down. The first chapter is devoted to Nehemiah getting news about what's going on in Jerusalem, and he's heartbroken. The next chapter, chapter 2, really deals with um, you know, him approaching the king, King Artaxerxes, and asking permission to go down to Jerusalem to get this work done, to get the work uh, that God was calling him to do done. The third chapter was really um, kind of a breakdown of who was doing what as they worked on the wall around the city. And then Nehemiah devotes three entire chapters to the subject of conflict management. He, he devotes three chapters to telling us about the opposition and the conflict that the people, and, and Nehemiah included, faced as they tackled this enormous task. Now, in our previous lesson, when we were studying chapter 4, we saw how Nehemiah dealt with opposition from outside the camp when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the, uh, the people who were with them, they all came and uh, first they mocked and, and ridiculed the people publicly, the Jews publicly, and then they uh, threatened them with physical violence. But there's something much more threatening than opposition from without and that is opposition from within. And that's the type of conflict that Nehemiah is going to be forced to deal with in this chapter. Paul instructed the church in Galatia, writing, If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. It's Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. But that's cannibalism. He, he's, he's, it's a metaphor, but I think it's a valid one. That is cannibalism, eating each other. Uh, Christians who devour one another, uh, being warned not to consume one another. And how sad is it to face the honest truth that there is just way too much of this type of cannibalistic behavior in our churches today? You know, we would expect that a world which hates God's value system, which is totally contrary to God's value system, would create opposition for us as we try to work uh, for God and, and build God's kingdom, doing the, the good works that God created us to do. But we don't expect it when someone within our own ranks opposes us and cuts us short. In fact, we should never, ever expect that. I mean, even if it happens 500 times, we still should never, ideally, we should never expect that God's people will oppose us. At least in theory, it should be as surprising the 500th time as it was the first time. It should never happen. But we all know that that is not the way 
it works. Instead, what happens is, you know, it happens a few times, and what happens? We start to expect it. And so what happens is we withdraw from doing God's work because we're expecting opposition from God's people in what we're doing. And so then the, uh, what you have next is a root of bitterness taking root in somebody's heart if they don't deal with it, if they don't deal with it. And it's all too easy and, and maybe common uh, for people to become jaded and cynical about doing God's work because of what they face from within the ranks of the Christian church. But there's nothing new under the sun. And that's always a great thing for me to, uh, to fall back on. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like this has never happened. It's not like there are not biblical precedents for dealing with stuff like this. God's people have embraced a culture of cannibalism for thousands of years. Thousands of years. At least 2,500 years. 3,000 years. When God would send prophets to Israel. It was like a death sentence. Man, you did not want to be a prophet sent to Israel because they'd stone you, they'd kill you. They'd make your life difficult if you were lucky, or they'd kill you. And as you look back through church history, you'll find that some of the most outrageous and admittedly successful attacks against Christians have come from other people who professed to be Christians. The cartoon uh, character Pogo famously said, We have met the enemy, and he is us. And as we'll see today, Nehemiah could have said those same words about 2,500 years ago, just as surely as many could say the same thing in Christian circles this very day. So the problem that Nehemiah faced, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to Nehemiah chapter 5. The problem that Nehemiah was facing now, now that he's handled the situation with the threat of violence and the situation with mockery, the situation that he faced now, next, is seen very clearly in the opening verse of the chapter. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Here we read, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Clear as day. Thursday, we see exactly what's going on. There's internal conflict, and it's not limited to just a, a small minority of the people. It's not just a small handful of the people. We're going to see that this is a conflict between two fairly large groups. And in fact, the group that's screaming the loudest is probably uh, much bigger. Uh, but these two groups would be the wealthy and the poor. Uh, which side do you think is doing the protesting here? The poor. The poor are the ones who are protesting. More specifically, what we're going to see is that this is a conflict between those who were laboring on the wall and those who were uh, serving more or less as overseers in this project. Either way, what we have here is a class conflict, a conflict between the rich and the poor. So what are the issues at the heart of the conflict? We find out as we continue. Let's read verses 2 to 5. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet, behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves." And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So just to summarize, there are three problems here. Number one, some of the people were starving. 
uh, unable to eat. And if you're unable to eat, you are unable to work. And there's a great work going on, an important work that's going on, but some of the people are starving. They could not afford to eat. Uh, number two, the second problem is some, some, of the peop- some of these people have mortgaged their property as collateral in order to buy the cheapest food they could possibly get their hands on. It's a matter of eating grain instead of eating you know, some good vegetables and some, some meat, some meat and potatoes even. You know, they, they couldn't afford to buy that, so they're buying the cheapest food that they possibly can, but they had to mortgage their property in order to do so. And three, uh, some had to borrow money against their property in order to pay the tax that the king had placed on their fields and vineyards. And so what happened is they had to sell their kids into slavery to repay this tax. And they lost, so they not only lost their kids to slavery, but they also lost their property. It wasn't even theirs anymore. It belonged to the others. And exacerbating the whole issue here is just the fact that there is a famine going on in the land. And when there's a famine, what happens to the price of food? It, it goes up because food becomes increasingly scarce. And when the, you know, the law of supply and demand kicks in and tilts more to the demand side, there's a greater demand than there is a supply, uh, as you would expect during a food shortage, during a famine, prices are going to skyrocket, which is going to make it harder for people to eat, especially poor people. Uh, further, when there's a famine, you have people who leave the land, which makes property less valuable because there's just more of it. So again, that's the the law of supply and demand. There's less demand and greater supply, so prices go down. The value, the collateral that they would have in their land has gone down. And so what we see here is just that there's a convergence of factors that are all coming together and it's resulting in the people suffering greatly as they attempt to restore Jerusalem back to the condition that God would have it in. Now, originally, the Jews, uh, as, we, as we read the book of Ezra, we find out that the Jews who had left Babylon to return to Jerusalem when King Cyrus had issued the edict uh, permitting them to return, initially those Jews that, that went down there, about 2%, found a lot of wealth. They found incredible wealth. We've learned in the first five chapters of the book of Ezra that those who returned from exile, went down to Jerusalem, had accumulated just this huge amount of worldly goods. In Ezra chapter 1 verse 11, we're given an inventory of what they came back with, and the inventory list is pretty short, but it's pretty huge. They came back with 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Not too shabby, not too shabby at all. That's a lot of gold and silver. And further, King Cyrus had opened his own personal treasury in order to return all of the articles of gold and silver uh, that had been plundered from the temple in Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So once they reached Jerusalem and started building themselves homes to build in or to live in, they were wealthy. They had money. They were well off. And that was evidenced by the fact that they were even paneling their homes, which was a luxury that was normally reserved only for royalty uh, because it was so expensive. But it was common for these people because the common person was pretty wealthy. And so once upon a time, what we see when we put all this together, we see that once upon a time, these people who are now selling their kids into slavery were very well off. They were set. If they just played their cards right, they should have been perfectly fine. But what changed in the 20 or so years uh, since that happened, since they, they had amassed all that wealth? Where had their wealth gone? Well, you know, maybe you could attribute it to the famine 
You know, there's, there's a famine that's making uh, food more expensive. So, uh, you know, that might be one problem. Also, we see that the king was taxing them. But there's no evidence here that this was an exorbitant tax or an unusually exorbitant tax. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily that it was more burdensome than other taxes. The real issue, which laid at the heart of the increasing poverty uh, of the common citizens, was that some of the wealthy Jews were taking advantage of the poorer Jews. They were taking advantage of their own countrymen, going so far as to force some of these poorer Jews to sell their kids into slavery to pay the debt that they had. Now keep in mind that Israel has this long history of being enslaved to other nations, to very ungodly nations, to pagan nations. They were slaves to Egypt. They've been slaves uh, to, to Babylon. But here they are enslaving their own enslaving their own. And that's not much different from cannibalism. That would be a culture of cannibalism. Now, I'm sure that the wealthier Jews would never admit that they were uh, trying to take advantage of people who uh, were less well-off than they were. They would never admit to exploiting their fellow countrymen, their brothers. They would probably confess to nothing more than trying to help them out. Hey, you know, I, I, he needed money, I had money, so I, I was trying to, to help him out. Uh, you know, they weren't doing anything which violated Babylonian law. Uh, what they were doing was perfectly legal in the land, technically, but there is no question about it. They were taking advantage of a bad situation uh, so that they were prospering at the expense of others during this famine. While during the famine, some people are getting rich, most people are getting poor. Now, how does Nehemiah feel about this? Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6. Then I was very angry when I had heard their outcry and these words. He was very angry. That's the first time we've seen him speak those words. And who can blame him? I mean, not only was this obviously standing in the way of completing the wall, and not only was this stirring up dissension among brethren, and not only was this killing morale, so that, you know, best case scenario, the, the work on the wall is seriously slowing down. But there's an injustice going on. There's a serious injustice going on. You see, there's a difference between justified anger and unjustified anger. Some people would say, oh, as a Christian, you know, you, you should never get angry. Uh, and I could not disagree more. Some things should make us angry. Well, most things aren't worth getting too fired up about. Because if you love something, then you must necessarily hate anything which denigrates or uh, devalues the object of your love. For example, if you love holiness, if you love holiness, you hate unholiness. You have to. You can't love holiness without hate, or you can't love holiness without hating unholiness. That is, if you call yourself a Christian, and you know one expression of the love of holiness is a hatred of sin or unholiness. If you love life, you should hate death uh, proportionately. If you love justice, as you should, by the way, since the very notion of justice comes from God's character. Um, so, if if you love justice, you hate injustice. Justice is part of God. God is perfectly just. And so Nehemiah loved God, and the expression of his love for God is 
and a, a love for justice, which means a hatred of injustice. And when you get angry about the things that are contrary to God's nature, in other words, if you get angry about things like injustice, or you get angry about sin, that anger is justified. And you should feel anger toward things like injustice and sin. Those are the types of things which uh, Scripture tells us anger God as well. He gets angry about those things. Francis Schaeffer, great apologist uh, in, the, in the 20th century, he wrote once that, quote, there are times in which anyone with a shred of moral principle should be profoundly angry, end quote. And so what we see here is that Nehemiah is profoundly angry. But notice that he has a different reaction to the sin of the Jews than he had to the sin of guys like Sanballat and Tobiah. Yeah, I think he was angry at uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. I don't think he liked those guys necessarily, but he never explicitly told us, I was very angry. He saved that for his brothers. He saved that for his countrymen. He was angry. He was, uh, he was mad. He wanted uh, justice on guys like Sanballat and Tobiah, but he didn't tell us that he was very angry at them because maybe one should expect opposition from the world. We saw that Nehemiah was expecting opposition to his work in Jerusalem, but we should never expect opposition from within our own ranks. So what does he do with this anger? How does he handle his anger? Let's continue reading verses 7 and 8. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. So there are a couple things that are going on here, implicitly going on here. The first thing that he does is he calms himself down. He consults with himself. He doesn't just react right off the bat, uh, as we saw last week, verbally engaging with somebody, uh, at the, you know, especially the target of your anger uh, at the moment of, uh, of offense is counterproductive. Uh, all you can hope to do when you speak out of anger at the moment of offense, all you can hope to do is d- dig a deeper hole that you're eventually going to have to climb your way out of. But once he's regained his composure and thought through the situation and thought about a game plan, he decides that the best way to handle the situation is to go to the offenders, go to the people who were enslaving the, the sons and daughters of their countrymen and consult with them privately. Same goes for us, by the way. If you're offended, the place to handle it is not in front of people initially. The place to handle that is privately. Go private uh, if it's at all possible with that person. And so he goes to them privately and he says, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Now, usury, you know, if I didn't know the context and I didn't re- understand exactly what was going on, I would never use that word. Uh, it's basically just a fancy, you know, big 50 cent word for levying interest on a loan. Uh, and we might be thinking, wow, what's so wrong with that? I mean, that's totally normal. You know, in our day and age, you would expect that if you're taking a loan out from somebody, you're going to be paying interest. Uh, so it's normal in our day and age. But the Jews had been ex- instructed explicitly several times not to do that, not to charge interest on loans to one another. For example, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, we read, if you lend money to my people... 
to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. Or, uh, you know, consider the, the chapter dealing with the Jubilee from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 to 37, where we read, Now, in case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you, in other words, if he's not able to sustain the loan, if he's not able to pay back the debt, then you are to sustain him like a stranger or a sojourner so that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. And further, we know that the people were sending their children off to be slaves because they were unable to pay their debt, which is yet another very clear violation of the law of Moses. Just a couple of verses further in Leviticus, we read in verses 39 to 41, if a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee, at which point he goes free. We shall then go out, uh, he shall then go out from you, he and his sons with him, and shall go back to his family that he may return to the property of his forefathers. In other words, if you gave somebody a loan, man, you, the land was not collateral. You didn't take the land from them. They got that land back on, uh, at the year of Jubilee. They were not to take advantage of God's people financially speaking, but that's exactly what we have going on here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now imagine that you have two kids, and each of them grows up, and you know, they've got a lot of kids, and one of, one, of your, uh, one of your children turns out to be rich, and the other turns out to be poor, and so the, the wealthier uh, brother says, well, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll help you out, but give me some of your kids in exchange, and then we'll talk business. Now if you are a parent... Of these two, how mad would you be? I mean, if, if that was my kids, I'd be like, did I not teach you better? What's wrong with me? I obviously messed up somewhere because you are totally out of line here. So, you know, taking your nieces and nephews as slaves for, in exchange for the blessings that you've been given. And this is the type of outrage that God feels when God's people take advantage of God's people. That's where God stands. That's why he forbids it. Now, how much interest is going on here? How much interest are we talking about? You know, there are some, some big loans, obviously, because it's resulting in property loss. Um, but how much interest are they charging? 1% per month, according to verse 11. And that works out to about 12% annually. And if that was enough to put people into slavery back then, 12%, man, if you could get a credit card loan for 12%, would you not take it? Yeah, because these days they charge like 20%. So, uh, you know, if that was enough, if 12% was enough to put people into slavery back then, don't think for a second. Don't be fooled into believing that the 20% interest or more that many of the larger banks are charging on loans these days doesn't put a person into debt, a type of slavery, that much more quickly. Solomon wrote, Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. The borrower becomes the lender's slave. See, that alone is all the reason any church uh, should need for operating debt-free. And praise the Lord that we do, by the way. Uh, what, a, what a great testimony to, uh, to financial wisdom and avoiding this principle, becoming the slave to a bank. 
During the Great Recession, our country actually saw a lot of churches close their doors because just prior to the recession and these years of great prosperity, these churches were taking out crazy loans, insane loans for millions of dollars. And, you know, it, it was affordable at first. You know, it was no problem to make the payments at first. But then when they ballooned, pop. And so churches were closing their doors because they couldn't afford the debt the interest that was being charged to them. And so that was, all, uh, that was all she wrote for a lot of churches in our country in that time. Anyway, Nehemiah privately goes to these people and demands that they stop taking advantage of the poor. Did he succeed? We don't really know the, you know, the extent of his success. Maybe he uh, succeeded with some, but for the most part, apparently, it seems pretty clear, he didn't. Uh, he didn't have success, and so he took it one step further, and he goes public with the accusation, gathering a great assembly together. You know what that means? It means that the people who were out working on the walls, and maybe the people who were supposed to be watching guard over the city, get pulled away from their duties. Because there's an accusation that needs to be levied here against the wealthy, and everybody needs to be there to hear it. The reason is pretty simple and straightforward. How important could a wall possibly be if the people within those walls aren't living at peace with one another? Eventually, there's just going to be an uprising and they're going to kill each other anyway. So what's the point of having the wall to protect them? It can wait. The wall can wait. Even the safety of the city can wait because the people inside of those walls are at odds with one another. There's enmity between one another. And likewise, what is the point of putting up walls in a church if the people within those walls aren't going to live at peace with one another? Now, I hate to state the obvious here, but just so that we're all on the same page, you are out of line if your conduct toward unbelievers is indistinguishable from your conduct toward brothers and sisters in Christ. That goes for anyone within these walls. If you are treating people in here, your brothers and sisters in Christ, the same as you're treating them outside, same as you're treating people who wouldn't come in here, who don't know Jesus, who don't love God, who value totally different things, if your behavior is not distinguishable, you're out of line. There is a different code of conduct. Think about it. Jesus says, the world will hate you because the world first hated me. And then he turns right around and he says, a new command I give to you to love one another the same way that I have loved you. John says, do not love the world. He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's from 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. So you see the difference here? There's a total difference. Here's a new command I have for you guys, that you love one another. And then John says, do not love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in that person. You see, the world is more than just the material realm. It's more than just the trees and the ground and the earth. It's a system. Biblically speaking, it's a system of people who hate God, who hate what God values. And these are people who are fundamentally different from how a Christian should value things. They, they value a totally different uh, set of principles. As Christians, see, we've been adopted into a family. We've been adopted into God's family, and the world is outside of that family. Until they profess the faith in Christ, they are outside the walls of that family, and they're hostile toward us. They hate our guts. 
They hate authentic Christianity. Jesus said, they will hate you because they hated me. They hated Jesus. So the world system values things that God hates. They love the things that God hates. Things like sin. Things like uh, greed. Independence. Self-centeredness. And if you're a part of God's family, you cannot love those things. You cannot love the world. You see, not only do we belong to Jesus, and we, we all like to say that, that's, that's something that we're, we're okay with. You know, we, we like to, to think about the fact that we've been adopted because of Jesus into God's family. We belong to Jesus. He paid for us with his blood. Uh, it sounds good, if nothing else. And it, it, it is true. It's a great and central truth of our faith. But Jesus didn't just shed our blood, uh, making us belong to him but also belonging to one another. And that's why we are said to be members one of another. By what? By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. He shed his blood so that we would belong to one another. And so it's clear in Scripture that we are supposed to treat one another completely differently than we treat people who are not part of the body of Christ. If you go through the letter of Paul's, you'll find a set of imperative commands referred to as the one another commands, and there are dozens of these. Uh, For example, here are some of my favorites. Love one another. That's an easy one. Be devoted to one another. Man, that's a a tough one. That's, That's a little bit tougher than saying, you know, you love somebody. To be devoted to somebody Oh, that's, that's really stepping it up. Be of the same mind toward one another. Pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We're strongly encouraged to avoid going to court with one another. Uh, through love, Paul says, through love, serve one another. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Uh, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. We're talking about the body of Christ and the way the body of Christ treats other members of the body of Christ. And I think you get the point. We're supposed to treat each other differently than we treat people who aren't a part of the body of Christ. We're brothers and sisters in spirit. We're brothers in spirit and sisters in spirit because of what Jesus did. And here's the thing. These one another commands are not uh, applicable. These, these commands don't apply to our code of conduct toward unbelievers. To take these instructions casually or to interpret in a, in a self-serving way, that, that only shows you that you love yourself, really. That, that's, all, that's all it boils down to. These are the keys. These one another commands. And man, you could do a whole sermon series probably on these. These are the keys to finding peace with one another. And we must find peace with one another before the building of the walls continues. Let's continue. Verses uh, 9 to 11. Nehemiah writes, Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Now notice that this is, this is more than just a call to bring the injustice to an end. 
It's more than saying, you know, quit doing what you're doing. It's also a call to make restitution. You see, if you do something to stir up enmity with a brother or sister in Christ, uh, relationally, emotionally, and psychologically, it's not enough to just stop the behavior and, and, and let it lie. There always needs to be some sort of restitution, whether that means sitting down and having a real heart-to-heart uh, to restore the, the, uh, the relationship, or maybe in, in really severe cases, uh, maybe it would mean paying somebody back for something that you have uh, cheated them out of. But notice that the charge here, that the people are in disharmony with one another, is because some of them, this is the charge, some of them aren't walking in the fear of God. See, when, when you're not walking in the fear of God, you're not going to care about what his word says. And apparently, Nehemiah is the only leader here who cares about what the word of God says. Uh, and there's also the implication here that it's giving the other nations ammunition for ridicule, giving them reasons to ridicule the Jews. And so how do these people who are taking money, taking interest, uh, how do they react now that they've been confronted publicly? Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 12. Then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So what we see here is that their consciences finally kicked in, finally caught up to them. Public humiliation has a way of doing that, by the way. When, if, if you don't feel ashamed about something, it gets dragged out into the light. Boy, you feel, you feel, some, uh, you feel some weight on your conscience. Uh, that's the way it works. That's the value, I guess, of uh, bringing things public. And that's why Jesus saved that step for last don't go public until you've first consulted with them privately, then bring a couple witnesses, and then if you still are having no success with these people, then you take it public. Man, we have so many illustrations from modern history of Christians taking advantage of Christians for the sake of monetary gain. Um, you know, I remember when I was living in Las Vegas uh, 10 years ago or so, and Benny Hinn came to town. And he was charging a hundred bucks per seat, a hundred bucks per seat. Now you could go and see the nicest Las Vegas shows at that time for under a hundred bucks. I mean, you could see a Cirque du Soleil show, and, and it's probably more entertaining than well, probably not better laughs. But <laughs>, <laughs> and who was who was his audience? Who was Benny Hinn's audience? It was the poor who who want to have a, a prayer of prosperity prayed over them. It was the sick who wanted to be healed. And Benny Hinn takes advantage of stuff like that. But, but you know, this, this principle really goes beyond, you know, just fraudulent faith healers. We see it in megachurch pastors who live these luxurious lifestyles that are comparable to the lifestyles of secular, uh, you know, corporate CEOs. There's just something that strikes us as fundamentally wrong, some, uh, fundamentally immoral when we see a Christian leader living much more luxuriously than the people he's accountable for. I remember reading a story, again, it was probably about 10 years ago, of a pastor in the Philippines who had this palace with this gate around it, and there would be poor people, his flock, who would sit outside these gates. They weren't even allowed in. I mean, that's, that kind of thing just strikes us as fundamentally immoral. Let's continue. Verse 13. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. 
Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Success. Now that it's been brought public, they've agreed, and he's had success. Justice was served, and peace is restored. But that's not the end of the chapter. It doesn't just end with Nehemiah saying, okay, you know, they agreed, they did it, and everybody's praising God, let's go home. You know, that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of what happened. He's not done dealing with the situation. First, he uncovered the root of the problem, greed. Secondly, he took it public. And third, he's going to set an example for all the leaders to follow. Let's continue, verses 14 to 16. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, that's at least how long it took to build the wall, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. So we all, you know, we all know how this works. This is, this is common. We see this all over the place in the news. Somebody who's in political power has a chance to take advantage of his or her uh, position, and they live in a life of luxury. But Nehemiah says, uh-uh. I didn't even go there. I didn't do it. Nehemiah and his kinsmen refused to eat the governor's food allowance for the next 12 years. That is some serious commitment. If you want to talk about being committed to setting an example, try doing it for 12 years. So for 12 years, they don't eat the governor's food allowance. Why? Because they feared God. And when you fear God, it changes the way a person acts. See, it would have been just as easy to say, uh, you know, we refused to eat the governor's food allowance because we wanted to win favor. We wanted to win the hearts of the people. That would be a legitimate reason not to do it. But that's not Nehemiah's motivation. That's not what it was. It was their fear of God. And their fear of God resulted in them doing something that would win the hearts and the favor of the people. So often, you know, the temptation is to to win the hearts of people and forget about fearing God. You know, if if we can just win the hearts of the people, then we can win them over for God. And that's why a major, major mainstream denomination in the past few years has approved not only of having homosexual clergy, uh, but they've also recently approved of homosexual marriage, which is a clear, there is not a more clear violation of God's word anywhere in the world. This is a clear dismissal of God's word. Uh, God's word. Where is the fear of God in decisions like those? Man, it's just not there. It's gone. And when the fear of God is missing, a person can justify doing just about anything they want. Oh, God didn't really mean that. They just dismiss it. And they dismiss it because they don't fear God. God wouldn't really call that an abomination, would he? Dismissed. No fear of God. We've got to keep the fear of God central to uh, everything that we do. Let's continue. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 17 to 18 says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. 
Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And, one, and once in ten days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude, uh, uh, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Nehemiah has more than people, than the average person. He could have taken advantage of it, but instead he distributes it. Some people have more than others. That's life. That's the way it is. But don't hoard your blessings. That's really what this is a lesson in. Don't hoard your blessings. And it, this is just a, a beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration of compassion in action. And so in typical fashion, Nehemiah closes the chapter praying, writing in verse 19. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, it's easy to, to, to read this and say, wow, <laughs> yeah, he, he's selfish. He's really glorifying himself there. This is not a self-glorifying prayer. This is a deep, deep trust in God. This is Nehemiah saying, God, I have acted in good faith, and I have kept my motives pure. I have acted out of fear for you. And so he's, fa- he's, he's uh, confident that God will have favor on him because that's how God works. When we're faithful to him, we, we open the doors for God's blessings. Whether that's material or not, that's when we feel the, the blessings of God pouring out on us, when we're acting out of fear to him and doing what he wants us to do. What about you? Do you love justice and therefore hate injustice? Do you love holiness and therefore hate sin? Are you keeping the peace and acting in love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Then take this promise to the bank. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. This is not just talking about people like me, pastors. This is talking about everybody because we've all Everybody in the body of Christ has been gifted for ministry of some sort or another. And this word ministered in, in the Greek, you could translate it as served also. Like where, where Paul says, uh, in love serve one another. Uh, you could translate that just as, as well as in love minister to one another. You get the point. Serving is ministry. See, this, this chapter, the fifth chapter of Nehemiah, is a lesson in avoiding a culture of cannibalism, a culture, a culture in which there will be the temptation to consume and devour one another. But the lesson of this chapter is to deal biblically, prayerfully, swiftly, honestly, and justly with any and all disharmony with other believers. You know, we are never intended, we are never designed to live in strife with one another, an internal strife doesn't glorify God. As we proactively seek peace with one another, God will guide us in resolving any conflicts that come up. And those conflicts will come up. It's a part of life. But we've got to deal with them. And we've got to deal with them in a biblical way. And this chapter is a great precedent for that. And as we do that, God will lead us as we move toward restoration in our lives and doing the work that he called us to do. 
Let's pray. <laughs> I'm sorry, I hear the veggie tales. <laughs> and I'm trying not to laugh. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just pray that we would see the principles that you have outlined in this chapter and that we would take them to heart. Teach us, Lord, not to devour or consume one another, but to love one another, to consider each other above our own selves, because you valued us enough that you sent your son to die for us. And what an awesome example that is. Lord, teach us to deal with any conflicts um, according to your word, according to uh, your, what your word tells us to do when conflicts arise. We pray for peace among um, people that we have in our local body, but also with the the body of Christ at large, uh, that we would have peace with them, and thus the work in your kingdom, the work that you've called us to, would continue and would flourish for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.